Maybe you want a reno. Maybe you want a new build. Well, an East Vancouver builder and renovator went viral yesterday for a social media thread that he laid out with screen cap receipts. It was quite the thread. If you haven't seen it, it's really quite something. The costly red tape involved with securing a permit, a permit of any kind in the city of Vancouver. Avi Barzilai is his name. He was actually on the Jazz Joe Hall show yesterday. And we, uh, we, grabbed a few clips just before we get to city councilor Peter Meisner, who has been kind enough to join us on this topic. Let's, let's listen to a couple of things that Avi said on the jazz Joe hall show yesterday here, here he's laying out how it is so tough to work in his industry in this city. The one thing I tell everybody is just how tough it is to work in the city of Vancouver. And it's not the same as other municipalities or the other municipalities, other municipalities are getting worse. Um, just this year, bureaucracy, even for a small renovation, is so tough. Adds a lot of cost. It's not like HGTV. It doesn't happen overnight. Oh, yeah. Those renovation shows on TV are very much not real. They are a lot of work, knowing people who work behind the scenes on those. And here is Avi explaining how it's not the staff's fault, but it is that staff perhaps aren't understanding the project. And you can say to city staff, hey, look, we're not doing structural work, but at the end of the day, the person looking at the plans, they might, might not understand the scope of the project. They might not be standing in your kitchen or bathroom. So they might just say, hey, you know what? We just want an engineer to sign off just so that we can protect ourselves. Okay, so Avi went on to say that there will be no change unless council and the mayor can, can get these departments moving. The main issue that we're seeing right now is the disconnect between the drive and ambition of council and the existing bureaucracy that's been in place for, you know, the last decade. So unless council can impart some of their drive and ambition towards uh, the DBL department and planning department, I really don't see any any major change. Okay, so that is a frustrated builder renovator who went on record with receipts, as I said, with receipts on the thread on on his Twitter feed that showed this broken system. One that I, I you know, give credit to the the new mayor Ken Sim and City Council because they've gone on record to say they are committed to fixing this. They got a three three one plan, but can the system be fixed with that, or is it a teardown in need of a new build? Pun intended. Because it's a $2,000 survey to even start the application project process, no matter what your project is. Uh, Avi was talking about a simple powder room renovation that had permitting costs, permitting costs of almost $10,000, just buried in the paperwork that had nothing to do with his reno. So it's very, very difficult to navigate this, even when you're in the business of doing it. So does this mean that people are bypassing the permitting process and just doing their renovations because they got to get it done for whatever the reason might be? Let's talk this through. Good friend of the show, Peter Meisner, is joining us on the line. Peter, it is a tough topic to tackle because there is no silver bullet here. So we really appreciate you making time for us today. Welcome. Good morning, Jody. Thanks so much. Uh, yes, it is a difficult issue and there are things happening, but certainly understand Abby's frustration and really respect and appreciate him speaking out as, as to what the challenges are. So when you're looking at this as a newly minted city councillor, you're looking at this and you're like, okay, where do we start? Can the current system be filled or fixed? 
or does it need to be reimagined in in a more modern world? This is a, a, a pretty, it seems like a pretty outdated system that's sort of been, had layers and layers of red tape added to it over decades. Yeah, I think it can be fixed, but I think we need to strip out those layers. So, you know, we had inherited a really difficult situation in terms of all the bureaucratic bloat that's been added on over the past uh, decade or so, as Abby uh, pointed out. So we're trying to work within that to make measurable change. If we are not able to make that change, say, by the end of the year, for example, we are going to have to look at uh, starting from the ground up because this is just way too complicated. There's way too much policies, plans, procedures, and bureaucracy layered onto this. And we can't make it difficult to deliver housing in the environment that we're in, which is a housing crisis. So we need to get out of the way instead of making things more challenging for people. Oh, there's so many people yelling amen at their radio right now, uh, Peter, because going through this, like you said, bloated, like needing a $2,000 survey because every house renovation and therefore building permit application in Vancouver requires a survey. That's every single one. So $2,000 on what might be a renovation that's going to cost $2,000 total. And that's just the first layer. Then you need the energy advisory report. And then you need the hazardous materials report. And then you need the arborist report. And then you need the schedule structure engineer report that's $750. Then you need the original drawings. You need an architect. And then you need the owner's undertaking letter. And then electrical and plumbing has HVAC permits. That's $1,000. Then inspections, if you can get them. You know, and these things all add up. Uh, is it wishful thinking to, to believe that these can be cleared up in short order? Well, I think there's a couple things that can happen. So some of those reports are necessary. I can't tell you that we're just going to get rid of some of those uh, necessary steps. But there is a simple renovation uh, pathway. Uh, and I think there's probably some miscommunication between staff and Abby. And, and that's very unfortunate. And we're looking into that with staff. But there is a simple reno uh, pathway for renovations that are uh, under uh, $20,000. And they don't require an arborist report or a site survey. But if it is over um, you know, $20,000, then those things do come into play. But I think the, it's not necessarily to me this, the things that are required. It's making that easy for people and crystal clear when they're applying for the permit. So we need to make it very clear as to what is required. And, and we've made steps to do this in terms of adding new customer service at the DBL office and also online. But we have a lot more work to do. And uh, it will take time for some of these changes to work their way through the system. Sure. Like you said, you were handed rather a convoluted and bloated uh, process that had been layers and layers had been added to the permitting process out of a want to perhaps be more environmentally aware or be more um, cautious and careful about what's being built where and how. Uh, but when we are in a crisis, when we are trying to uh, address the housing crisis for starters, but also affordability for the everyday citizen, where it seems like all of the costs increase and all the ability to to reduce those costs um, are hit with a brick wall. What are some of the things that, that people can do if they are running up against these struggles that Avi, and I'm glad to know that, that you're helping to streamline things for him and in, in finding his way, but people who don't maybe take to social media and get loud about it. Is there an avenue they can take to say, hey, listen, I'm caught up in this red tape. Can I get some help? Is there a, a place to go, a person to get on the phone at City Hall to help with this stuff? Yeah, so they should go to the DBL office or call the DBL office. They now have added more appointments for people to have a one-on-one -on -one appointment before they make the application. So that was definitely a gap. 
during COVID, uh, we did lose some staff members. So we've ensured that those positions have been filled. And frankly, if they're having problems at DBL and, and they're not getting the answers that they need, they should email me and I'll look into, the, into it for them. You know, that's great uh, note. Honestly, Peter, we're with Peter Meisner, Vancouver City Councillor. All of the Vancouver City Councillors are on the City of Vancouver website with their email addresses available and all of the councillors get and read their emails. Obviously, they get a lot of them. Yes. So don't expect a 15-minute reply, but, you know, very activated in wanting to address the struggles within this city and, and helping the community. I want to also point out that Avi went out of his way to say, that this is not an issue that he has with staff. Staff are working very hard at the city of Vancouver. This is not a slight towards the hardworking people. And frankly, towards those uh, like yourself who take on the role of, of having to sit in the hot seat like this. But wanting to have change happen in an expedited fashion is the want of, of citizens in this city uh, that is ever more expensive. Is there any other piece of advice that you might give to somebody who is is, is frustrated uh, by this. So sending you an email, DBL office is another. Um, is, there, is there some, sorry, Peter, some, some gathering of information or <laughs> intel that people can do ahead of time so when they do finally get through to somebody, they have everything in front of them? Is there any advice there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, they need to go to the DBL site. We've added more resources in terms of the application process. There's videos um, and that sort of thing. But uh, we are working on it. I'm very committed to this. We are all committed to this. We know this is why we were elected to speed up the delivery of housing. And, and we have to do that. So if the city can't be the biggest roadblock. And it's not staff, as you say. Staff are working very hard. But it's the system they're working in. It's all these plans and procedures have been layered on year after year. So we need to simplify things. And we need to look at other cities for best practices to see how they're doing it. Thank you for showing up this morning to be in the hot seat, Peter. I appreciate you. My pleasure, Jody. Have a great day. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. It's time to talk more about the BC port strike, the labor dispute that is getting rather nasty. It has been... Uh, a very tenuous back and forth. The bargaining table, uh, never a, a friendly place to sit, but things have escalated and continue to escalate um, as we just slide further into what is disrupting not just things here in British Columbia, but across the country when it comes to industry and economics and supply chain. We've been talking a lot about it. We're going to talk more about it in Baldry's Beat for sure. But I just had something come in um, a press release that has been received as the ILWU uh, calls on Marine employers to end the, quote, dirty tricks campaign and return to the bargaining table. You may have heard on the Jazz Joe Hall show or yesterday here on Baldry's Beat that a number of reporters had received a leak from the uh, BCMEA about what was or might have been, allegedly was, on the bargaining table. And the ILWU is saying that the, the BCMEA is using the media to, to the, the dirty tricks media campaign is the exact quote from this, using anonymous sources to selectively leak misleading information to reporters is, is what be, is being alleged here. And then lays out a bunch of points about 
workers, how waterfront workers spend many years waiting on call to get one-off shifts at very short notice and their income is sporadic and unpredictability of shifts makes it hard to supplement it with other jobs. Turnover is high in this period. Many workers can't stick it out. And even once they have more secure employment, many waterfront workers don't receive a shift for days or even weeks at a time. They go on to to point to earning pay rates at the high end of the scale means working night shifts or even six or seven days a week. Also pointing out that uh, when the leak had some of the higher end salaries for port workers, there was no inclusion of management income as well, just the union employees there. So there's a lot at play here. Obviously, there are some who are asking the federal government to force back to work with some legislation here calling the ports an essential service, ports and rails essential service. But our next guest wants to add to that discussion um, how while business leaders are calling for back to work legislation, taking away uh, labor by striking is really the only tool that workers have to force concessions for employers on things like cost of living and, and protections from increased automation. So Dr. John Henry Harder is our guest. He's a lecturer in history and labor studies at SFU. Glad to have you here, doctor. Thank you for doing this. Glad to be here, Jody. Thank you. Can you give us your perspective on what we're experiencing here and what the calls for back to work legislation from the federal government, how that lands with you? For sure. The, the calls for back-to-work legislation don't land very well with me. And I want to point out, too, that the employer is being and their allies, because it's not just uh, the BC Maritime Employers Association, it's the Chamber of Commerce, it's the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. And now, in day six, their, their sort of way of framing their call for back-to-work legislation is, this is dragged on long enough. But there was an article in the Globe and Mail, it was an op-ed piece by Robin Guy and David Van Hammond. They were calling for government intervention on June 28th. That was two to three days before workers even walked off the job. So their opinion piece was, strikes at West Coast ports are a grave economic threat. Government needs to act. And that was the vice president of uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and the vice president of the Vancouver Board of Trade, asking for government intervention even before workers had gone out on strike. So there's no commitment to free collective bargaining in that position where you're saying to government, hey, you need to do something about this strike that hasn't even started yet. Can we get into a little bit more about what free collective bargaining and striking the history of that and and how it lands here and maybe how tenuous this moment is because we have just experienced supply chain disruption with a pandemic, sure, with a war absolutely. in Ukraine, with a, with a ship stuck in the Panama Canal to uh, atmospheric rivers and heat domes. Like there's just so many things, the dominoes have fallen that everything is so stretched. Might that be playing a role in this as well in the urgency to want this particular thing fixed? I Yes, Jody. I think it plays uh, a lot into how we receive the employer's distress call even before the strike was out there. But it is yeah. exaggerated in the sense that the supply chain, and this might seem odd to some of your listeners, but the supply chain hasn't actually been drastically affected at this point on day six. It, because Nobody, I think, if if we think about it, believes that that container at the port 
has to make it to market that same day. Because a lot, two-thirds of what goes through the Port of Prince Rupert, because it's not just Port of Vancouver workers who are on strike, two-thirds of it goes to the United States. So it's got to be loaded on trucks. It's got to be sent to wherever it's going. Only about 15%, I think, of Port of Vancouver stuff goes right to the United States. But my point is it will take a while for the supply chain to be disrupted. And I do agree with you. I had forgotten about the ship in the Panama Canal. But in terms of the pandemic, um, we're, this strike, it would have to drag on for a couple more weeks to even start the beginning of what the supply chain interruptions we saw um, during the pandemic. And I don't mean right. to down, I don't mean to downplay the inconvenience for someone who actually literally has one container that they're waiting for for their furniture store and the truck was going to pick it up yesterday. But from a global perspective or even North American perspective, we shouldn't be seeing any impact, you know, in the grocery store or at the furniture store or wherever um, this early in the strike. We're with Dr. John Henry Harder, a lecturer in history and labor studies at SFU, just talking about the ramifications of this port strike and how the two sides seem to be, or, or very much are, tossing barbs at one another rather publicly. So that yeah. can speak to just how far the divide, how wide the divide is at the bargaining table here. However, looking at, and the reasons why workplaces unionize is to consolidate the workforce behind one uh, representative at that table and the need to, um, to, to, to find a way back to this table and have the conversation, as you said, you know, just days into this work stoppage, into this strike, um, you know, not unique. Strikes are painful, I guess, is the short uh, piece of what I'm trying to, to put on the table exactly. here. But but they're, they're painful for a reason, I think, is what I'm garnering from, from your perspective. It's supposed to be painful. Yeah, I was just going to say, Jody, hey, you're making my argument for me because that's exactly what I always say. And um, if people have ever heard me talking about any strike ever, when um, the media or the employer is talking about the inconvenience, and that's, that's a really strong lever, right, to say, oh, my God, the supply chain, or oh, my God, you're not going to be able to get milk or whatever the issue is. But you're right, strikes are, it, it, it's the workers' last resort to withdraw their labor, and they do cause interruption, they do cause inconvenience. Um, you know, when teachers go out on strike, is it inconvenient for parents? Yes, absolutely. But that's the one tool that we have as workers is to withdraw our labor. And that's where the free collective bargaining is, is really important. And it is, because you asked me about that earlier, it is, um, yeah. it is our right as, as workers, as employees, we have the right to unite together, to present demands to our employer collectively. And we do that through um, unionization. And it gives us a collective voice, right? Rather than, and a lot of your listeners who aren't unionized know about um, having to go to their manager, their employer individually, beg their case for a raise, and they're told no, or they're given 25 cents, and then somebody else gets 50 cents, and someone else gets a dollar raised, and it's not fair. And they're, they're pitted against each other in their own workplace because they have to all bargain individually, right? And right. so that's the basics of this is 
this is the interesting thing too. The BCMEA, the Employers Association, and all their business allies are saying the port's so important, the port's so important. So absolutely, I agree. So let's pay the workers at the port that clearly you're telling us is so important. Rather than say the port's really important, let's force the workers to take whatever we want to give them. Like that doesn't even make sense to me. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. We're continuing our discussion with Dr. John Henry Harder, a lecturer in history and labor studies at SFU, talking about all the ramifications around uh, the cry, the outcry for federal intervention on the BC Port and Longshoremen strike. Uh, Doctor, let's talk first about what the optics would be if the federal government were to step in with back to work legislation so quickly into this uh, strike. I, I think the way I would encourage people to look at it is the government would be intervening on behalf of employers yet again. But more importantly, they'd also be breaking the law because uh, it was a 2015 Supreme Court ruling found that collective bargaining is actually um, protected under their our chart of rights and freedoms. And that was a landmark case because prior to that, Supreme Court, like since the 1980s, their decisions, like uh, in a series of different decisions, had kind of located the the right to strike wasn't protected, but the right to unionize was. Is there a so, deadline that could could be enacted here that would that be appropriate? Say, get back to the table, get a deal done, or binding arbitration or something. I mean, I'm a very novice person. I've been a, I've been in a union before. But sure. that was when I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken working at Fastwalk. But I did appreciate, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. honestly, honestly. Absolutely. But I, I appreciate and, yeah. what comes with it. And Jody, you were one of the lucky, uh, I'm assuming you're probably a young teenager or something. Uh, I was. fast food workers, right? Compared yes. to your counterparts at the non-unionized fast food outlets. Um, I made three times yeah. as much. Exactly, yes. And, and. I know this is going off topic, kind of, but contrary to popular opinion, fast food work is actually really hard and stressful, so you deserve that money. And in answer to your question, um, I think a timeline, it totally makes sense. It's a a great suggestion, but but then couldn't the employer just wait it out? If I I say, you've got five days to make a deal or else we're doing X, Y, and Z, then the employer really would have no incentive to give the $8,000 signing bonus or some sort of agreement around automation because they just have to wait five more days. And that's that's why I asked the question. I'm so glad for that. That's an aha moment, right? Because of course that could be used as a tool. No, it is. I'm serious. I mean, like I said, I'm a lay person. I I ask the questions that I honestly don't know the answer to. And I'm happy to learn because that is that's very true. The other thing that concerns me as a as a Canadian citizen is our reputation abroad when our 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 ports and and we've got, you know, blockades at some of our border crossings. People can't move goods and services and and freight management companies are going to say, you know what, let's go SeaTac. We can count on Seattle Tacoma instead. And yes, that I, that's a great question. And one of the interesting things is, is that we have to remember the BC Maritime Employers Association, if people aren't used to talking about this group, they might think about it like um, BCPC who bargains for the government with teachers, right? So it, right. as if it's just this one organization. But the 
BC Maritime Employers Association represents big shipping companies, ship owners, their agents, um, companies that own container ships, and terminal operators. So they've got a billion-dollar and multi-million-dollar um, businesses that they're rep- yeah. that they're representing, and so. These people are interested in profit. We know that. That's exactly why they're in business. They're not doing it for the average Canadian citizen to make sure we get our goods. That's what happens, but it's so they can make the most money possible. So they're not going to take roundabout routes to market um, just to spite Vancouver um, longshore workers. Like, yeah. they want to settle this, and the pressure's on, I would say... The international shipping community wants their employer association to deal with this. And, and that's, that's where the pressure could be, too. You know how all the calls seem to be, hey, legislate the workers back to work? And we're used to that. That's like this knee-jerk reaction that business creates. I yeah. want to change the narrative, and you can help me. <laughs> I want to change the go. narrative. Let's legislate the employer's to get back to the bargaining table. Say, listen, you need to get back to the bargaining table or we're going to do this. So why don't, why shouldn't they have some consequences for not bargaining? Yeah, there should be consequences on both sides. Listen, doctor, I've only got 30 seconds left, but I promise that we slip in a little bit about automation because that is definitely on the table. We've also, we've seen that disruption. That's a piece that can can an employer be expected to pay out protections on something that might streamline their ability to do business? I think if the automation is huge. And one of the things is around the Robert Bank shipping terminal where the employer wants to create a whole new terminal and they're saying yeah. it's going to create jobs. So the ILWU is saying, okay, well, put your money where your mouth is, like guarantee us jobs because you can't say this new port's going to create jobs and then behind the scenes make it, uh, semi-automated or fully automated. Yeah. That's a really good point. I could talk to you all day. I thank you for your time. There's a reason why you're a lecturer in history and labor studies at SFU. (laughs) Dr. John Henry Harder, fascinating stuff. Lots of learning here. Appreciate your time. Have a great day. Jody Vanson from Mike Smith. And our next subject is that of needing care. Being an elder who needs care, having a loved one, a parent who needs care. Nobody wants to need care. And I remember having a conversation from with somebody from the Rick Hansen Foundation who, who used the term TAB, temporarily able-bodied. Um, needing assistance is something we all will likely experience at one point or another in our lifetime. When that moment arrives, sometimes it's very slow moving. Other times it is very urgent. The needs are incredibly diverse. And those who care for our seniors in particular, our elders in particular, are really angels who walk amongst us. Those who have had to navigate the the care system uh, will see how hard these workers, uh, uh, dedicated workers, uh, try to be all things to our elders in their time of need. The difficulty in navigating the system toward care is real, especially for those who perhaps have not planned for the need of care and the cost associated with it. Yes, there are subsidized beds. 
beds. Yes, there are healthcare uh, avenues to take that are supported for families who cannot afford the care that is needed. But navigating it is very difficult. Somebody who understands the intricacies of seniors care in our province is our next guest. Isabel McKenzie is a BC seniors advocate and joins us now. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate your time, Isabel. My pleasure. I appreciate your interest. Well, you have had uh, a, a long and storied career and experience within working with seniors, whether it be home care or licensed care or community services or volunteer services, long-term dementia, all of it. You've, you've navigated it in a way that you understand the needs of many. I've only navigated it in the way of helping my dad navigate through Alzheimer's through, you know, tap, tapestry at Arbutus Walk and then to Sunrise and then to Delta View. And what our family had to do to navigate through that and figure out what was best for him was incredibly stressful and difficult. Thankfully, we had the means to do it. Um, I wanted to speak with you today about how there is this, you know, giant wave of people, the boomers are aging into a situation where support is needed, whether it's in the home or in uh, more of a, of a long-term care home scenario now or in the coming years. And many haven't saved for care. What kind of advice do you, do you give to those seniors or to their family who are, are trying to, to support them at this time? Well, I think what's important to reflect on is the oldest boomer right now, Jody, is only 76 years old. And we really don't see pressures on the healthcare system until most people are on the other side of 85. So as much as we're feeling pressures in our healthcare system today that we think is from seniors, you know, whether it's our long-term care system or uh, community care system out there, uh, it really yet has not been feeling the impact of the aging boomers. That's still to come. So you want to think about uh, as bad as we think it is today, that's in relation to uh, not the boomer gen- generation with its pressures on the system. It's their, it's their parents that are putting the pressure on the system at the moment. And the other dynamic that we need to understand is two things are happening. Um, when you talk about caregivers, there's the caregivers that are family caregivers and there's the caregivers that are the professional or the paid caregivers. And remember that right now, uh, family caregivers are giving five hours of care for every one hour of care that the paid caregivers are providing. And the challenge as we move to the future is there's fewer family caregivers. So uh, families are smaller. Uh, people are you know, more likely to have been divorced, more likely to have been never married, more likely to not have any children. If they have children, they're more likely to only have had one. And they're more like, it's more likely those children don't live in the same city. All of that is saying that care that family members have been providing historically isn't going to be able to be provided in the future. And we've got a shortage of the paid caregivers that can substitute for those family members. So, you know, we've got to really think about how we're going to significantly increase that pool of paid caregivers uh, as we move forward in the future looking at the boomer generation that we still uh, have to feel the impact from in terms of uh, stresses on our uh, aged care healthcare system. And the people who exited, those paid caregivers who exited working in this lane because of the stresses put on them during the pandemic, like three, three solid years of it being sort of ground zero of, of terrifying and understaffed. 
uh, and under-resourced. I mean, I can only imagine what, while we point to, you know, nurses and physicians who are, are feeling the, um, the after effects or, or echoing effects of, of the stresses of COVID-19, certainly in, in care homes, that was an, an extra added layer of, of, really terror. I mean, my dad was in Delta View during the pandemic and I watched these people trying to work under circumstances that were so scary each and every day. My point being not really an attractive job description in this moment when so many headlines are speaking to how how stressed and starved our long-term care home system is because there aren't enough workers. Yes, but um, we need, you know, we need to remember that most people uh, who come to caregiving, whether they're a doctor or a nurse or a care aide, uh, they come to it because they want to provide care for people. People generally select vocations in life that suit what it is they want to do. They want to be a teacher. They want to be a lawyer. They want to be a broadcaster. Um, so we need to remember that you, most people, not all, but most come to these uh, vocations wanting to care. And so, you know, we find that, uh, for example, if we take nursing, there are still more applicants for nursing school uh, seats than seats available. So we don't have a shortage of people wanting to be nurses, and that's a good mm-hmm. thing, right? We've mm-hmm. got to figure out how to accelerate the educating of these nurses and how to overcome the barriers of the foreign trained nurses. When we look at the care aids, which is really the, the, the vocation that makes the day-to-day difference for older people, we found that uh, when we removed financial barriers to training, so this HCAP system uh, that the, or program that the provincial government instituted had great success. So it was a, you know, previous to COVID, if you wanted to be a care aide, you had to quit your job and take a $10,000 training course, and then you'd get a part-time job at the end of it. So needless to say, a lot of people weren't prepared to do that. When we mm. said, okay, well, we'll pay for your training and pay you while you train, we got a lot of, a lot of people into the system. But it circles back to, you know, this reluctance uh, that we we all have to recognize uh, as we look to the future, there are some significant costs down the road coming our way as we care for this aging population. We haven't begun to experience them yet. As I say, the oldest boomer is only 76. Um, And so this this, uh, is something that I think we as a people and as a government have not come to grips with. The government, you know, it's always announcing how much it's increased its funding to various programs, and it has. But often that doesn't translate into increased service because it's costing a lot more just to do the same thing and and the same amount of the same thing. And we have to do more. And uh, I think, so when we talk about, you know, how can we uh, prepare for the future if we feel we haven't financially saved I think that all of us are going to have to recognize, uh, I hope, uh, we continue to be a society that says we're going to care for frail and vulnerable people. And with that, uh, in a dignified way, and with that is going to come, uh, it's going to have to be paid for, and how are we going to do that? And I think there's some very difficult uh, discussions that governments, both provincially and federally, are going to have to have with their people, uh, meaning us, about how that's going to happen. We're with Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate. And Isabel, in your eyes, what needs to be done in order to to do that? Beyond um, 
where the money comes from, because ultimately it comes from the taxpayer. There's only one bank of Canada, and that's the people. Um, so we're going to have to 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 shoulder that in one form or another. But what meaningful changes should happen now to prepare for the boomers to to age into what will be a wave of a, a large portion of the population requiring some level of care? I have. I think we have to figure out how to uh, simplify uh, the system and yes. eliminate these frustrations. So you spoke about what your family went through, which many families have gone through, and at the core of some of your frustrations, not all of them, would have been sort of sent from pillar to post uh, with different people telling you different things and con- contradicting and and roadblocks put in the way of the family and a very we have a very bureaucratic centric system of healthcare not just in BC to be fair I think it's it's pretty much across Canada we've got to figure out a way uh, to simplify that so that we can empower. Uh, the families who care about and for their loved ones um, to be able to make those decisions, um, have those decisions supported, and ensure that uh, the, the, the resources are being connected in the way that, that people want. And I've spoken about this quite a bit, and I'll continue to speak about yes, it. Yes, you have. Uh, we, yes. we are, yeah. you know, the, we, we subsidize long-term care significantly, but not community care. And, mm. if, and people want to live in the community, uh, but that's not where we're supporting them. We're supporting them in long-term care, and inevitably that's where they go, and the system sort of drives everybody there. Uh, through a variety of different incentives, and we've got to we've got to step back from that and uh, understand it's more a North American phenomenon. Uh, you don't see it as much in Europe, where there's more acceptance of people living um, in their own homes as they age, and part of that is risk uh, tolerance. We're very risk intolerant in North America, um, and you know we're we're going to have to understand how all that. Uh, is going to work because, you know, people talk about this demanding boomer generation. As I say, they have not yet begun to tap into the elder care health care system. They're old, the oldest is only 76. Right now, we're hearing from them when it's demanding for their parents. Well, wait till it's demanding for them. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to have to be prepared to respond. And perhaps it is that boomer generation who right now are thinking, hmm, maybe I will need that eventually. I should probably be looking toward a system that might be set up to help me with that and and talk to their kids about that. And so that everybody, because so, the politicization of how this unfolds leads to the bureaucratic um, sort of way the system has been set up to this point. Yes, I think what will be different as the boomer generation, you know, enters mid to late 80s and starts to have significant pressures on the healthcare system and need those kinds of supports we need as we age. I think the difference from the current people who are, you know, 90 years old is that uh, the boomers are going to have lived through an era where, uh, first of all, they're not as trusting uh, automatically of authority and you know, the doctor says to do this, so I do this. They're more questioning of things, um, more apt to do uh, their own research and come up with their own ideas on how things want to be managed. Um, and so, 
And with that, I think, and certainly having watched their parents, they'll be the first generation where their parents have lived into the 80s and 90s and lived through this aging process more so than what their parents saw with their grandparents' generation. I think uh, they're going to start to to think about those things. And we we see that a bit, Jody, when you look at, for example, um, housing configurations. So, you know, what is it, 95% of people over 65 live in their own home. But about half of those are not single-family homes. So you're already seeing people migrating from the single-family home to the condominium or the townhouse or these kinds of things that are making these transitions easier. Um, And I think we'll see more of that. I think there's going to be, in the boomer generation, a greater embracing of people helping them. We've, we, the boomer generation outsourced every domestic chore. Um, uh, you know, we had housekeepers, we had dog walkers, we had all these things. Our parents' yeah. generation didn't have any of that. Um, and so, you know, as they aged and needed help, there was more resistance to that. I don't think the boomer generation is going to resist the help uh, no. to the same extent, um, for better or for worse. And so they're going to demand it. Is what's going to happen. It'll be better for Gen Xers. I'm I'm saying yeah. it's they're gonna they're gonna help set it up for the, for those of us that are gen, Generation X who are living it and watching it and wanting to help because we yeah. are you know trying to trying to be the doers. I really appreciate your time today. Very enlightening. I was leaning in on it being you know that tsunami now and it's not even started, which is something that no. that requires some light to be shone on it. Thank you, Isabel McKenzie, for your time. As always, appreciate you. Okay. My pleasure. Thank you, Jerry.